Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Continuing our study here through the book of Luke. Uh, the original plan, Lord willing, time willing, was to get uh, about halfway through chapter 23 today, but we ran out of time at the 8.30 service because it took a little while longer to go through some of the stuff because there's a lot of good points in here that we don't want to skip over. We're at the point here finally in our study throughout the book of Luke where Jesus is going to be tried and convicted, and then eventually, and we'll get to this in a week or two, he's going to be hung on the cross. Now, before we get to this point, it's important to have a little bit of background. As we've said here the last few weeks, there's 71 verses in the book of uh, Luke chapter 22. We've been in Luke 22 for quite some time, but it really builds up to this point where we have been. We're in the final moments, the final hours, if you will, of the life of Christ. We talked about a few weeks ago how Jesus was the Passover lamb. When the Jews celebrated Passover, Jesus is a picture of that, the lamb that died for our sins. Then a couple weeks ago, we talked about communion, where Jesus started that. And he instituted communion and what that means and what that represents. And then last week, we got into this idea of the disciples betraying Jesus and denying him and Jesus being alone and seeking God. We mentioned Peter and how Peter would deny Christ three times and eventually how Peter would eventually be restored. And that's important to remember that. He was restored in the Lord. But we talked about how Peter reached this point of depression and discouragement and gave up. So what we have here this morning in Luke chapter 22 is Jesus is arrested, and as he's arrested, he goes through the trials that eventually where they will convict him falsely of charges and then eventually will lead him to the cross for the sins of the world. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Luke chapter 22, verse 54, it says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with them, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, this is Peter's fall, if you will. Now, if we only had this passage, it would be very depressing and very discouraging. But we know in John 21, Jesus comes and restores Peter. It's important to mention that as we covered that last week. But looking at Peter here and what happened. I mean, this was the guy just a couple weeks ago. If you jump back to verse 33 in Luke 22, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm here. I will not leave. Everybody else may leave and forsake you, but I will not leave. Just last week, Peter was the guy that whipped out the sword and was going to take on the whole Roman army to keep Jesus from being arrested. And now we have in verses 54 through 62, Peter falling completely. What happened? What happened to these great statements and these great actions followed by a fall? Problem is, I can relate to these verses way too much. I can be very boastful in my words with the Lord. Now, when I say boastful, I don't mean prideful of look at me, but boastful of, Lord, I will never do that again. I will never do Lord, I will get up every morning 20 minutes early to spend time with you in prayer. Lord, I will make sure that I lead my family in devotions every day. Lord, I will. I can be very boastful in those statements where really what it comes down to is I'm Peter. I will stumble and I will fall, but God 
will prick me back up. Now, let's get to the heart of this. Why did Peter fall? I think the answer is found in verse 54. Peter followed at a distance. Anytime you follow the Lord at a distance, you're weak. You're weak. We need to be as close to Christ as we possibly can. When you follow Jesus at a distance, you have no strength, you have no power, you have no nothing. James 4.8, draw near to God and he draws near to you. When you put that effort into your walk in relationship with Christ and you stay with him, he is right there with you. But when you start to linger behind, yes, he loves you enough to say, come up here with me, but he won't force it. And if we choose to follow Christ at a distance, it will weaken us. And next thing you know, we'll be making choices that are not godly in nature. I know many people that follow Christ at a distance. They are Christians in name. If you ask them, they'll tell you exactly what they believe. But yet they follow God at a distance. The relationship is not as strong as it possibly could be or as it should be. Another verse that goes right along with this is, Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone. I love that verse. It's out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 50. Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone. What happens is you follow Christ at a distance... And then you create your own little fire, spiritually speaking, and you think you're fine. You know why you think you're fine? Because you're not in the accountability of the church, you're not in the fellowship of the church, not in the conviction. So everything looks great. Problem is you're getting weaker and weaker the farther you get from Christ. And the more you sit by that little fire by yourself, that's a dangerous spot to be. A very dangerous spot. Christ will tell us, hurry up, come. He'll wait for us. But we have to choose to want to be with Him and be close to Him. And you probably know people that follow the Lord at a distance. And here's the truth of the matter. I don't think they really realize what they're doing. I think they think they're fine spiritually. I think they got it completely figured out. I think they are completely fine spiritually in their own mind. And they don't even realize how weak they are becoming. They don't realize the choices they are making are leading them farther and farther away from the Lord. Peter never thought he would deny Christ. Never. But he did. I know some people that never think that they could stumble and fall back. But they can. When you follow at a distance, it leads to problems. And that's exactly what happens here. And you know what else happens when you follow the Lord at a distance? Guess what? Look at verse 56. Servant girls scare you when you follow Christ at a distance. Servant girls are one of the scariest things in the world. Now this is the guy that just a few verses ago whipped out a sword cut off the guy's ear, and was willing to take on the Roman army. That's Peter. A few verses later, a servant girl is making him nervous. Why? Because when you follow God at a distance, you start walking in fear and not faith. I've seen this happen to me, and I've seen me do this to other people. I've had people come up to me and said, Hey, I saw you the other day. Now, if I'm with the Lord spiritually and doing good, oh, hey, what'd you see? What was I doing? If I wasn't, if I'm not right with the Lord, I usually say something like, well, it's not what you think. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you saw, but it's not what you think. I remember years ago before Dawn and I had kids, we were in the middle of Walmart in the bread aisle, and we were not seeing eye to eye on something. And someone came up to the rest of the week and said, hey, I saw you at Walmart. My first response was, were we arguing? Because if you saw us arguing, it's not what you think. When you're not following God as close as you could be, servant girls become scary. It's this idea of, I saw you, well, doing what? Are you sure? Peter was new in his heart. Something wasn't clicking. Now, I think in his mind he convinced himself he was never going to fall and stumble. 
But he's starting to walk in fear. He's not walking in faith. And eventually it leads to this. Verse 60, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The rooster was that final sign that Peter denied Christ three times. I heard a teaching one time, and it kind of stuck with me, where he was jokingly saying this, that, and, but jokingly but serious, he made a serious point about it, that Peter, if he knew the sign of him falling was going to be the rooster crowing, Peter should have stayed away from every rooster that he ever saw. And the teaching point was this, is the pastor was saying, stay away from roosters. You have roosters in your life that are a warning sign to you that that is an area that you're weak in, that that can make you stumble, can make you fall. Stay away from roosters. So I don't know what the rooster is in your life. I know what the rooster is in my life. And if I start seeing that rooster, I probably need to get away a little bit because that's a warning sign saying, hey, this is an area of weakness for me that will make me stumble and fall. Stay away from the roosters. So Peter falls. Peter stumbles. What's God's response? Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What a look. What a look. Now, I think it's important to analyze this look a little bit. This is my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. I don't think this is a look of hatred. I don't think this is a look of disgust. I think this is a look of love. I really do. That's my personal opinion. I think it's Jesus looking at Peter, knowing what Peter did, but still saying, I want to have a relationship with you. And I think that's proven by John 21 when Jesus comes to restore Peter. Because the Bible could have said a lot of different things. The Bible could have said, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and yelled at him. Worse, it could have said, and the Lord turned and would not look at Peter. Can you imagine Jesus not wanting to look at you? The most loving thing Christ could do is find Peter in the crowd, look at Peter, make eye contact. I think it's a picture of saying, I still want you. I still want a relationship with you. I still desire you. He wasn't yelling at him. He wasn't screaming at him. He wasn't saying, Peter, I knew it. Or like, Peter, I can't even look at you. I've said out here before, you want to be angry at me, be angry at me. But the worst thing someone could probably tell me is I'm disappointed in you, you know? It's the same thing here with Peter. This look is a look of restoration. This look is a look of love. And I believe that's what Jesus was trying to do. What's Peter's response? So verse 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, we know what happens. Once again, if this was the final verse on this subject, it would be a very sad ending. We know, once again, from John 21, Jesus comes back to Peter and they restore the relationship. It's a beautiful thing. But I hate to say this. I can relate to verses 54 through 62 way too much. I'm really good in my words. Lord, I will never. But then I do. I'm really good at starting to follow God at a distance and thinking I'm okay. I'm really good at warming myself by my own little fire thinking I'm okay. But then servant girl starts scaring me. And then what happens is the rooster crows, which reveals to me I'm wrong. But you know what? Verse 61, the Lord still looks at me and wants me. And i got to remember that. We can all relate to Peter in verses 54 through 62, but look at the love of Christ there in verse 61. This now sets us up for the trials of Jesus. Now, here in the book of Luke... They talk about four different trials that Jesus went through. Actually, Jesus went through six different trials. Six different trials. Got to know a little bit of the background here before we get into this. The Jews were basically run and under the control of the Romans. 
the Jews did not have the right to put someone to death. They couldn't. They could pass a death sentence, but they would have to get Rome's approval to do this. Rome was the one in charge. So what you see happening here in these trials is the Jews making their case against Christ, and they eventually accuse him and convict him of blasphemy, of him claiming to be God. And that is their way of saying, now we can kill him. But now they have to go to Rome and get Rome's okay to do this. So when they go to Rome, they kind of start flipping it around a little bit, and they start saying, well, Rome, this guy committed treason. Because Rome would say, he committed blasphemy. He said he was your God. Rome would say, we don't care. That's nothing to do with us. Oh, but now he committed treason. He's turning people against the empire. Now we'd have to step in and say something. And that's where the role of Pilate comes in. And we'll get into Pilate a little bit because he was the Roman ruler over this area at this time. So there's six different trials that Jesus actually goes through. The book of Luke does not mention a couple of them, so I'm just going to mention those real quick as we go through it. The first trial that Jesus goes through is he went to Ananias. He went to, to, to Annas, the high priest here. Now, I, we have to make this very clear. He was not the high priest at this time. He had served as high priest for about 17 years. But he had recently stepped down, and his son-in-law Caiaphas had become high priest. So now Annas is still the one in charge, if you will. Caiaphas has the title, but he's actually the one that has the power. You've probably seen that at work. You have somebody who actually has the title of boss, but you really know who runs the ship type thing. Same thing here. So this guy really has the power. This guy really has the one that everybody wants are okay. So he's the one that goes through the first time. He was the high priest for 17 years. He's no longer it, so they bring him to him. And so he's the first guy to get to ask Jesus some questions. So he comes to Jesus and he says, tell me your doctrine. Jesus says, you want to know my doctrine? Ask my followers. They will tell me what I believe, what I teach. You know what his great response to that was? They start beating Jesus. Look at verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemed and spoke against him. That's his great response. It's this idea of, I'm going to beat you. Jesus didn't say anything wrong. Now we could go into detail here, but all the rules the Jews were breaking at this time, you can't hit the defendant. You can't do a trial in the middle of the night. Right now, these six trials basically go from about 1 a.m. to about 7, 8 a.m. in the morning. So this is the middle of the night. You can't have a trial at this time. It's against the rules. You can't be beating the person. It's against the rules. We could keep going on and on all the rules they were breaking. They didn't care about the rules. They wanted Jesus dead. And that's exactly what they did. So, Annas the priest, they come to him. He says this. Basically, he starts to beat him. Jesus' response to this is, why are you hitting me? Very simple response. Why are you hitting me? Now, think about this for a second. Look at verse 64 one more time. It may not hit you the way it does for me, but when I look at verse 64, this is a powerful verse to me. It says, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Stop and think about that for a second. They took the creator of the universe. They took God, blindfolded him, and they just started beating him. And then mocking him by saying, okay, prophet, tell me who hit you. That verse has always bothered me. It has always bothered me because I look at what Christ went through. Don't get me wrong. I am so thankful that he died on the cross for my sins. But I want to see the Hollywood version of verse 64. I want Jesus to whip the blindfold off calls fire down from heaven. And I want to see him go on a rampage, you know, through all the people that hurt. That's what I want. He didn't. He didn't. He stood there or sat there or laid there and just took it. 
Now, here's the problem. There's a biblical word to describe this. We don't use it much in our English language. It's called being meek. Meek. Now, when we think of the word meek, we think of weak. We think of a wimp almost. If we would come up and say, well, that man is a very meek man. That's really not a compliment in today's language. For my biblical definition, boy, being meek, that's powerful. Meek means that you have power under restraint. You have power under control. Jesus was meek. He could have fought this thing off easily. He is God. He willfully took the beating for the greater purpose later on. He was meek. One definition of meek was this. Prefers prefers to bear injuries rather than return them. Prefers to take the injury rather than go ahead and give the injury. Now, in today's society, we look at that as weak. That's actually one of the strongest things you can do, is to have the power to respond, and you choose not to. Think about that. Have you ever had a time where someone came and they are just attacking you with words? And attacking you falsely with words. Boy, oh boy, does that get the blood boiling. And you could say something back. You could go down to their level. You could be as loud as they are and you could be as nasty as they are. You willfully hold back. That's being meek. Maybe you see the bigness of the situation saying at this time, at this place, it would do no good. I remember there was a situation that happened out here years ago where there was a group of us in a room and there was somebody that came in and had some issues, some situations, and they just started attacking people. And you could tell this person was just angry and upset. And you could tell what they were angry and upset about was not what they were angry and upset about. There was a lot of other things going on behind the scenes. And so they got to me, and they started saying some very hurtful, attackful things. And boy, the flesh wanted to respond. But here's the definition of meekness. Just keep my mouth shut. At this point, it doesn't do any good. Maybe there's a situation at work where there's some guy that keeps saying things. Hey, there's some time to respond. There's some time not to respond. Maybe the Lord is saying, just let it go. Be meek. Maybe there's a situation in your marriage where sometimes the one spouse gets a little too attacking. Sometimes the best response is, be meek. You know how difficult that is? It's difficult because we start thinking this. Well, I can't let that go. Because if I let that go, they think they won. And isn't life all about who won? No. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, is knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, And even if to say it at all, what you're going to see here through these trials of Jesus is sometimes Christ's response is nothing. He says nothing. They're asking him these questions and he says nothing. And and that used to bother me. I'm thinking, Lord, you have an opportunity here to really preach the gospel. You have their undivided attention. Why would you not take advantage of this? Because God in his infinite wisdom knew they didn't want to hear it. See, there's times in life where someone is attacking. I could stop and say something. They don't want to hear it. This is not the time to do it. I was just talking to someone recently about how sometimes as Christians, we're doormats. People walk over us. But here's the definition of meekness. I willfully allow myself to be a doormat sometimes. I stop and I say, you want to walk on me, walk on me. That's fine, because there's a greater good that comes out of this. Jesus right here, verse 64, they're beating him. Oh, come on, Jesus, fight back. No, there's a greater good that comes out of this. Listen to this passage if you're taking notes. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guilt found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he reviled not back. When he suffered, he threatened not back. Basically, he took it because he saw the picture that was there at the end. There's a meekness of Christ. The next time you're in a situation, be it maybe at home, be it at work, at school, or in life, and the person starts attacking, let the Lord lead. Sometimes you've got to respond, yes. But sometimes the response of Christ is the best response, is to say nothing at all, and to allow that to say, I will hold that back for the greater good that may come out of it. So after we leave this trial, now we get sent to Caiaphas, who's the actual high priest at this time. And Jesus is just, as we just said, and they start asking him questions, and his response is nothing. Then all of a sudden they ask him a question saying, tell us who you are. And he says right here that I command you by the living God to tell us who you are. Basically what he said is, I am telling you now to swear by God who you are. Now, Jesus has to respond to that because according to the law, you have to speak truthfully. So Jesus' response is he comes right out and he says right here, he goes, I am the Son of Man. He says, I am the one, I am it. So he admits it. So now what happens is now that they got him to say this, now they take him to the third trial, which is before the Sanhedrin, which is now what we have in verse 66. First trial was Ananias, the first high priest, who was no longer the high priest, but still had the power. Second trial was Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Now they got him to admit it. So now they take him to the Sanhedrin, verse 66, which is the Jewish ruling authority at the time. 70s, maybe 70 plus men. Verse 66, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to him, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. If also I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. This is probably right around 6 o'clock in the morning. He's been beaten. He's gone through this. He hasn't slept. So now they're basically saying, You're guilty. What else do we need to hear? Look at verse 71. What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The other gospel accounts say this, that they tried to collect all these witnesses to make up a story against Jesus. The problem is the witnesses couldn't get their story straight. So they finally got Jesus to admit it. What other testimony do we need? We got him now. He admitted it. He blasphemed. But look at the response of Christ, verse 67. If you're the Christ, tell us. His response in verses 67 through 69 He says, what good would it do? If I tell you I'm not, you're not going to believe me. If I tell you I am, you're not going to believe me. There is no answer I could give at this moment that would do any good. Have you not ever been in a situation like that? Someone is coming and attacking you with words, and you really realize there's absolutely nothing I can say at this moment that would diffuse this situation. There's not. If you look at his response in verses 67 through 69, Jesus really just doesn't argue. Sometimes the best way to handle somebody who is just irate and wants to argue is just not to argue back. You know how difficult it is to argue with somebody who doesn't want to argue? They wanted to get into this with Christ, and Christ didn't. Verse 70, are you then the Son of God? Yes, you rightly say that I am. I see, when I envision this, I I envision these people attacking him. We know they're beating him. I envision them yelling at him. I see them in in Christ's face. I just see Jesus in a spirit of calmness, in a spirit of peace. Answering certain questions. Have you never had a moment like that? Where you are being attacked with words. You are being chewed out. And and 
and you're just calm. That's meekness. That's being in the Spirit. Because I hate to say it, and as I'm actually teaching this lesson, I can think of one time in my life where that happened. I could probably think of a hundred times where it didn't, and I wish it would. Because the flesh gets riled up. You know it. You see it at work. You see it in your marriage. You see it with your kids. You see it in life. Somebody says something. Oh, I'm a little offended by that. So I say something, and it just elevates. Meekness. Power under constraint. Power under strength. Where you don't say anything. You hold back, and you let it go to see the big picture. Jesus right here holds back. So now they have him. Verse 71. He's committed blasphemy. He's claimed to be God. Now we can finally take him to Rome. And that's exactly what happens in Luke 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And when they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, said, As you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. You need to know a little bit of background about Pilate. Pilate was a pretty weak man. Pilate was the Roman ruler at this time. When I say Roman ruler of just this area, I should say, geographically. He had gotten in trouble with Rome. Rome did not like the way Pilate was handling the Jews. The Jews were a difficult group of people to handle. So Pilate tried to do all these different ways to take care of the Jews. Finally, what Pilate did is he started getting heavy-handed. Executions. Well, that didn't work. So Rome was upset at Pilate for not handling the Jews properly. The Jews were upset at Pilate for being this type of man. Pilate's kind of in a no-win situation here. So here's the problem. They come to Pilate, and they basically say, listen, verse 2, this man deserves to be put to death. Forbidding to pay taxes, perverting the nation. Remember we said earlier, treason. What's Pilate's great response? Verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. That should be the end right there. Let him go. Pilate was a weak man. Pilate was a very weak man. Pilate was such a weak man that he could not stand up to this pressure. He didn't do it. Hate to say this, I can relate to Peter. And now I can relate to Pilate. Have you not had a, ever had an opportunity in your life where the Lord has given you an opportunity to take a stand and you didn't? You just did it. I remember there's a situation years ago before I was a pastor out here. The Lord opened up a door to share with somebody. Just didn't do it the way I should. Walked away from that just feeling defeated. Why didn't I stand, Lord? Why didn't I take a deeper stand? As Christians in the world we live in, there's always going to be times where we could take a better stand. Maybe it's in moral issues concerning certain things that are happening in the world today that are bringing the, the world down, the nation down. We need to take a better stand. Maybe it's spiritual issues. Maybe it's life issues. I don't know. But what happens is this. We do what Pilate does. I find no fault in this man, but we don't take a stand. Pilate knew he was innocent. Pilate gave in. Why did Pilate give in? Verse 5. But they were the more fierce. See, Jesus isn't fierce. He's meek. There's nothing to be scared of with Jesus. He's a beaten, broken man. I mean, he's standing here as this lump of flesh that's already been beaten. He's not arguing. He's not doing anything. The only thing he's saying is verse 3, it is as you say. But Pilate's got this crowd of Jews that are yelling and screaming. Peer pressure. We give in. 
Boy, Lord, help us not to be a pilot. To say we know the truth. I find no fault in this man, but yet to then give in. See, I, I tell you right now, if you claim to be a Christian and you make that very public and you live your life as a born-again believer, be it at work, be it at school, be it at home, be it at life, wherever it is going to be, you're going to be placed in situations where you're going to be asked to take a stand for truth. You are. Now the question comes up, will you take that stand for truth or are we going to back down, verse 5, because the crowd is fierce? Where do you walk? Do you walk in faith or do you walk in fear? I hate to say this, but when you look at this picture here of the people we're dealing with today, there's not a single person that we can stop and say, model yourself after him. Peter can't model yourself after Peter today. Talk a big talk, but then stumble. You can't be like the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they're just hypocrites. In fact, we know in John 18, the Bible says that they would not even go in to see Pilate because that would make them spiritually unclean. See, it's the, it's the Passover at this time. So if they go in and see a Gentile or be near a Gentile, they're unclean. What hypocrites! We want Jesus beaten and put to death, but yet we won't go near a Gentile because it'll make us unclean. And then we got Pilate, who says, I find no fault in this man, verse 4, but yet doesn't take a stand. Doesn't this lesson just prove to you that there's only one person that you can focus on, and that's Jesus Christ? I mean, seriously. Peter, no. Sanhedrin, no. Pharisees, Sadducees, no. Caiaphas, no. Pilate, no. Jesus. I mean, that's really what this lesson comes down to, is this world... Everybody will fall and stumble and make bad choices and and walk in areas they shouldn't walk. And really what it comes down to is my eyes need to be focused on Christ and Christ alone. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Final passage here. Can you go to Hebrews, please? Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to have to stop here with Pilate. And we've still got a few more trials to go through. We have to finish this one with Pilate. Then Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate eventually gives in and has him crucified, which we'll get into next week. But let's just reiterate this point right here of where it has to be Christ and Christ alone. Look here at Hebrews chapter 12. See, in Hebrews chapter 11, you have this great chapter on faith. And it's these, all these heroes of faith, all these great men and women of God that just had a, an amazing witness for the Lord. So what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 is this, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that, which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So basically, okay, we see how all these men and women live for the Lord. Let's do the same thing. Let's get rid of the sin in our life and let's move forward. Let's, let's live for the Lord. And how do we do this? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Eyes on Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. We talked about that. And I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was willing to be meek to see the end result of people saved. God says, I need to keep my eyes on Christ. Put the whole message together now. If my eyes are on Christ, I'm not going to follow at a distance like Peter. I'm not going to warm myself by the fire alone. I'm not going to be afraid of servant girls. And the rooster is not going to scare me. If I follow Christ, I'll have the wisdom to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all. Just like there was times where Jesus said nothing, 
There's times where he answered because he knew the best time to say something. If I keep my eyes on Jesus and I stay close to him, I'm not going to be like Pilate, where I find no fault in this man, but yet I don't have the backbone to live out my faith. I will say what I believe and live out what I believe. And I'll also keep my eyes on Jesus, which means I'll walk in meekness, realizing sometimes I will be unrighteously attacked by people, but yet I will be able to hold my tongue and say, Lord, I will walk in meekness in this situation and not allow my flesh to get the best of me. See, this lesson really is just a picture of Christ and of exactly everything he did and how we can learn from him. Next week, we'll get to the final trials that put Jesus on the cross. And I tell you, there's some wonderful passages in there where you see Christ willfully going to the cross. And what does that mean and what that represents? Marv, conform for her for the final song. While they're getting ready here for the final song, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to walk as Christ walked. Help us to walk.